we need a vaccine for COVID-19. That's the short answer. Around the world, billions of dollars have been put toward finding one, and researchers in Canada are working to find a vaccine that's safe, effective, and can get to us as fast as possible. There are currently hundreds of candidates for a vaccine, each moving along the scientific path for testing and ultimately distribution. But once we have a vaccine, or several vaccines, we still need to make enough for every Canadian and billions of people around the world. According to my guest this episode, that is our real challenge. Dr. Volker Gertz, Director and CEO of Vito Intervac, is on the front line of vaccine development. He and his lab study viruses in humans and animals, both current and emerging. They're working on their own vaccine, helping other organizations with their vaccines, and trying to predict the next pandemic. He sees a lot of promise in the global collaboration happening now. He's confident that there will be a vaccine, and he says while Canada is playing a leadership role in the research, we've fallen behind in other areas. While we wait for a vaccine, he shares how Canada can get through this pandemic and be better prepared for the next one. I'm Michael Bassett, and welcome to Bright Future. My guest for this episode has spent his life working on the development of immunology and vaccines for humans and animals. This passion has brought him around the world, but his home is in Saskatoon. Dr. Volker Gertz is the director and CEO of the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization, International Vaccine Center, otherwise known as Vito Intervac, at the University of Saskatchewan. Dr. Gertz and his team have been thrust into the spotlight as the world focuses on finding a way out of the pandemic. Volker, welcome to Bright Future. Thanks for having me. What is Vito Intervac's role in the creation and distribution of a vaccine for COVID-19? So as you mentioned it in your introduction, we started to work on this essentially the second week of January. As soon as the World Health Organization identified a new virus in China and declared it a new emerging disease, we launched a vaccine project and we generated a vaccine within our lab here within five weeks and started to test it in animals in March already and then demonstrated in May that the vaccine actually protects these animals. We were really, really quick in responding to it and working on the vaccine. Vito Intervac was the first lab in Canada to isolate the virus. We were the first lab in Canada to have this animal model established. And as I mentioned, we were one of the first to have a vaccine in testing already. A quick response to this, and that's really what Vito is all about. Vito Intervac is Canada's largest research organization focused on emerging diseases. We'd like to call it Canada's Pandemic Center. That's really the role we can play here. We're one of the 10 major science infrastructures in the country. So we're especially focused on emerging diseases now. We operate uh, one of the largest high containment laboratories in the world. It's the International Vaccine Center. We're well equipped to deal with these emerging diseases when they arise. You've been working on vaccines and diseases for your whole life. People have been learning so much about pandemics over the past four months, so we no longer need an explanation of what exponential growth is or what flattening the curve is. What is the equivalent of flattening the curve as it relates to vaccines? Really, I think what this pandemic shows is that vaccines are absolutely critical in controlling these diseases when they emerge. And what we're seeing right now is more than 100 different vaccine candidates globally 
coming forward. People are using different technologies. People are using different concepts for vaccination. People are working internationally together, collaborating. It's all in the race towards finding a solution for this disease and, and providing a vaccine to people as quickly as possible. In my mind, at least, this is really unprecedented. The World Health Organization is playing an excellent role in organizing and coordinating international efforts. There is a lot of different technologies coming forward, and it's very exciting to be part of that collaboration, that international teamwork. Is there a word or a concept that you think everyone will learn in the next however number of months as the vaccine moves forward that will become our the vaccine cue that we're making lots of progress and it's on its way? What we're seeing really is that, what's the word? That's a good question. It's really like vaccines are needed, right? I mean, we can see now that antivirals are helping people to leave hospitals earlier. There is potential therapeutics monoclonal antibodies and so on. But in the long term, what we really need is a vaccine. And so maybe the term is vaccines are needed or something like that. It's really the only meaningful solution to a disease like this. How large has the investment been in the development of this vaccine? Globally enormous. You probably have seen some of these numbers. It's in the multiple billions of dollars right now. For your listeners, we can say, roughly speaking, for humans, a vaccine to develop, so the whole cost for development, and then also taking it into commercial manufacturing and getting it out there, you can roughly estimate between $800 million and $1.2 billion for a single vaccine. With all these different technologies coming forward right now, you can see that various countries are allocating now large amounts of money towards these international efforts to develop these vaccines. And then, of course, there is organizations like CEPI and others, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So if you take it all together, there is billions of dollars coming forward right now to fund some of these vaccines. But as I mentioned, vaccines are very costly to develop. With hundreds of vaccines or over 100 vaccines coming forward right now, we need that level of investment to take them into clinical trials. Has the investment in Canada been sufficient in terms of moving the Canadian position forward? I think what the Canadian government has done, and that was a commendable in a way that it was a quick response. So the, the Canadian federal government, as well as the provincial governments, put money directly into the organizations that are immediately were dealing with COVID-19. So we received money to not only for the research on it, but also to develop a vaccine. That money allows us to now take our vaccine candidate into human clinical testing. It's not enough to get it out into a commercial mass production and distribute it to people. That is why we are needed to find, or at the moment need to find another commercial partner who can do that. But it allows us to do what is the most important thing right now, and that is to develop a vaccine, manufacture clinical grade material, and then get into human clinical testing as quickly as possible. And then at the same time, the federal government also pitched a lot of money towards these global activities, including the Gavi, the Global Vaccine Alliance, to coordinate vaccine development and then later on distribution amongst the many countries that subscribe to this idea. The vaccine money seems to be spread across the research and development side, and then quite a bit has been also allocated to the distribution side so that there's the ability to ramp up and move everything forward. Is the calibration 
between the research and the development? Is it the right mix right now? Canada at the moment, unfortunately, does not have a lot of manufacturing capacity in the country. Find ourselves in a, in a situation now where we, to some extent, depend on other countries to manufacture the vaccines for us and then give them to us when they are able to share with us. Part of the investment that the federal government has done is really to build up the capacity in Canada to manufacture vaccines. So, for example, here at Vito Intervac, we received funding to build our manufacturing facility here in-house. But there are also other organizations and companies in Canada have received large investments to build manufacturing facilities. It's recognizing that when it comes to these global pandemics, countries have to have a level of self-sufficiencies. They have to be able to manufacture vaccines for their citizens. And so each country, to some extent at least, needs to have enough manufacturing capacity. Globally, I think we're finding our, or the planet is finding in a situation where there is many, many countries on this globe that don't have manufacturing capacity and they completely depend on other countries. And that is where then organizations like WHO or Gavi come in to, to provide vaccines to these countries, mainly low and middle income countries that don't have the manufacturing capacity. It sounds like we're stronger on the research than the distribution side, but there is an effort to address the distribution component. The recent investment from the government is really helping to build capacity for the manufacturing. On the research side, especially with these calls that CHR had recently, a lot of research groups around the country have received funding to work on COVID-19, come up with new ideas and new solutions. That is well covered. What we're really missing at the moment is the infrastructure to manufacture enough vaccines for Canadians in the country. Is there work happening to build that capacity in Canada? Yeah, we here at Vito Intervac are building a manufacturing facility within the next 12 months, and it's allowing us to then produce clinical-grade material to enter human clinical trials, which is the first thing. So it's a small-scale manufacturing facility, but also for situations like a next uh, global pandemic, we could ramp up production here. And for example, of our own vaccine, we estimate that we could produce between two and five million doses a month, you know, would help in providing enough vaccines for Canadians within a short period of time. And there is other places in Canada. So the National Research Council facility has received funding to build up their manufacturing facility. There is a manufacturing facility on the West Coast for therapeutics that is being constructed. Federally, the government has recognized the need for that. For example, the provincial government in Saskatchewan here is also supporting this effort. Provinces and federal government are coming together, recognizing the need for manufacturing capacity and so investing into that. It's been difficult sometimes to parse out the difference between the discussions around the vaccine development being portrayed almost like an arms race. The first country that has the vaccine will have the leg up and will get it to their population earlier. On the other hand, when you're reading the news, there's quite a lot of partnership, the international partnerships and the research partnerships that your organization is part of and that other organizations are as, in terms of advancing the vaccine development. It's difficult sometimes to figure out, is it more of an arms race? Is it sort of a global collective benefit? What is the reality as it relates to vaccine development for COVID-19? That's a difficult question. I'll give you my take on this. I think this is really 
unprecedented. We're seeing a lot of collaboration amongst the big manufacturers. They're working with global organizations. They receive funding from global organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, CEPI, and others. What you can see right now is that these big manufacturers are working on solutions to making them globally available. For example, the Jenna vaccine, so the Oxford vaccine, is now it was licensed to AstraZeneca, one of the largest manufacturers, and they are working now on a solution to then license it out to various territories in the world, ensuring that the local production capacity is there to make this vaccine all over the world. One manufacturer has rights to one vaccine, but ensures that it can be produced around the world so that as many countries, as many people as possible benefit from it. And that is all being coordinated with CEPI, with WHO, with Gavi, with the Gates Foundation and so on. There is a lot of international work in trying to make whichever vaccine comes first to make that as, as broadly available as possible. On the other hand, you of course see that some countries are investing heavily and they're saying, well, if we're investing so heavily, then we want our citizens to get the vaccine first. And so it's a little bit a mix of both. And I think that's going to be the challenge for the next year to make sure that people get access to these vaccines when they come. How different is the COVID situation than the work you were doing before in terms of the development of vaccines and moving those things forward? Vito Intervac often responds to these emerging diseases, both on the animal as well as on the human side. We were part of the initial um, of SARS-1, the SARS-accelerated vaccine initiative that Canada had at that time, where we developed a vaccine for a coronavirus in pigs that recently came to North America and killed within the first year 15 million pigs and cost more than $3 billion in economic losses. We made a vaccine for it in 18 months. Part of our role, that's why we're here, and this time maybe it's, I would say, more urgent because people are literally dying on the street. But we here understand the importance of these emerging diseases and the need to respond rapidly to them. And I think that's what we demonstrated by starting so early in January and then really running our program so quickly. And now, because of our infrastructure that we have here, we have now received well over 100 requests to work with companies and other researchers from around the world in assisting them in their vaccine development as well. So it's not only that we're working on our own vaccine, but we're also helping others to develop theirs. And again, that's really where I see the role for Vito Intervac. Our vision is to be Canada's pandemic center in helping the world to find solutions for these pandemics. We've heard that vaccines normally take a long time. I've heard you say normal, it's about 10 years. After four months, we're already starting to desperately want to return to normal. And I don't think we can wait 10 years for a vaccine for this. Everything points to us not having to wait a normal process. But we are reading that things have been accelerated and that pushes getting it as fast as possible. What should we understand in terms of vaccine development, how this accelerated timeline is possible? And a trend that we have seen in vaccine development over the last few years is really relying on what we call platform technologies. Technologies that are proven in principle, and when a new disease emerged, you just use some of the genes or the structures from the new pathogen, include them into your platform, and then develop your platform as rapidly as possible. And the advantage of that is 
that much of the safety profile and the required safety testing and so on is already done for these platforms. And so you can rapidly get them through the various stages of testing. That's a trend that we're seeing. And for years, people have been talking about reducing the time for these emerging diseases to something like four to six months after emergence of the disease to have a vaccine candidate that is ready to go into human clinical trials and human testing. If you do that, then the time frame would be within a year, you might have a vaccine that would be ready to be mass produced and be distributed to people. What we're working here at Vito Intervac now is, is actually really transforming vaccine development for the future. We're working on programs where we're trying to predict what the next emerging disease might look like and make a vaccine in advance before this disease even emerges. We're trying to simulate evolution in the lab. We're using here a combination of bioinformatics, structural sciences, so structural virology and so on, but also animal models. And, and we're trying to create new emerging diseases by forcing these viruses, for example, to jump the species barrier. So what that means is what we've seen now with COVID-19, that we think it, it came from animals, it jumped probably into an intermediate host and then from there into humans. So by us doing that in the lab, we're trying to predict what these new pathogens might look like, where the mutations might happen, and what regions of the virus to then generate new viruses. And if we have that information, then we might be able to predict what the next pathogen might look like and make a vaccine already in advance so that when it actually emerges, we have that vaccine already stockpiled, ready to be transported on a plane to fly to wherever that outbreak is, distributed locally. So in the COVID-19 case, we would have sent 5 million doses to Wuhan in the first week after it got diagnosed. So much of that international global spread could have been prevented by locally vaccinating and instead of now trying to catch up to the virus, we would have been able to have a vaccine available before the disease even emerges. That sounds fascinating and frankly, a little scary in that you're purposely creating new and emerging diseases. I can understand why you would do that to help, I guess, me feel comfortable. That's a standard part of vaccine development and that's, or this is the new approach. Yeah, so that's not the standard part. That is really how we are changing now vaccine development. We're predicting what the next pathogen might look like, and then we're trying to actually demonstrate that our vaccine would work for it. What you require for that is these high containment facilities like ours, where you can safely work with these viruses, you know, have your staff protected from it and ensure that they don't get out. It allows us to essentially do what nature might do anyways. By working, for example, with coronaviruses, we're using coronaviruses and we enable these viruses or we force them to jump species barriers, something that happens in nature. And it just happened in COVID-19. All we're trying to do is to do this in a controlled environment, get the information on where these mutations might occur, and then actually start focusing on those regions and include those regions, that information into our vaccine strategy. You've talked a bit around the timelines. Can you clarify what is the timeline. Once a vaccine is approved, how long will it take to ramp up production? So the regular process for vaccine development is that you start with your proof of concept work, you generate a vaccine in the lab, and then you test it in animals. And you have to have an animal model to simulate the disease and to have a readout and test whether your vaccine actually protects against the infection. 
for COVID-19, the models that are being used are hamsters and ferrets, and then people are also using non-human primates for that. Once you have then cleared proof of concept. The proof of concept is usually around how long? Well, it depends. So in this case, for us, it took three months, or maybe four months. Normally, it might take years. This is where people were really trying to be as quick as possible. But if everything works well, it could be done in four to six months, let's say. And after that, what you need to do then is you need to demonstrate that the vaccine candidate that you have is completely safe. Safety of the vaccine with all these accelerated timelines and so on is the most important thing. And the criteria are given by the regulators, Health Canada in this case, or FDA in the US and so on. So the regulatory authorities in every country, and they specifically define what you need to do to demonstrate that your vaccine is completely safe. For COVID-19, there are some very, very strict requirements. And, and that's a very good thing that we have to make sure that the vaccine is completely safe. So that is what you then do in animal. Again, you demonstrate your safety first in animals. Once the data is looking good, then you're allowed to go into human clinical testing. And there is phases to that. And the phase one is really assessing safety in a small group of individuals, typically between 30 and 60 individuals. You vaccinate them with your candidate vaccine and you look for adverse events to the immunization. So any unwanted side effect. And that is, again, just to demonstrate that your vaccine is safe. Once you have cleared that, then you're allowed to proceed with a phase two trial, which then enrolls more. It's typically in the hundreds of individuals. And there you continue to look for safety assessment, but you also start measuring the immune response to the vaccine. And now you're trying to see the same what you have seen in your animal models, or you're trying to see the same in humans and make sure that you get the same responses that you have seen in your animals. So actually seeing that the vaccine induces an immune response. That is what is called phase two. And after that, you get clearance to roll out what is called the phase three trial. And that is now going into thousands of individuals across the country and really seeing how the vaccine performs out there now in the face of a disease. That is a, a bit the challenge right now in that we're seeing that some of the countries already have lower case loads. And so finding territories where you can effectively test your vaccine is a challenge for that phase. And that's why it's so complicated to do. At the moment, there's a few vaccine candidates that are in phase one and phase two testing. And then there's one candidate that is now entering phase three testing, and that's the Oxford vaccine. So that's the normal way. And what I jumped over there is that for all of this, for the human clinical testing, you have to have what is called clinical grade material. So the vaccine has to be produced in a way for all of your testing in the same way as you will later on produce your final product. So you have to have a process defined, you have to have proper quality controls established and so on, so that you can guarantee that later on, each and every vial of your vaccine was made exactly the same way as you have done in your testing, and that it has the same quality product in there. So you have to be able to measure and demonstrate that. That's another important part of all of this while all this testing is happening, you have to make this clinical grade material, which we call GMP, good manufacturing practice. You have to have manufacturers that have the capacity to do this. It's a very complicated process and it has to be well documented. And that is the, the important key here, that the regulator at any given time can say, 
how do you know that in this vial number 5723, the product in there has the same quality than in all the other millions of vials? That's what is happening right now, and that's what we're doing with our vaccine. While we're doing all this animal testing at the moment, we already started the manufacturing process of this material so that we then eventually have clinical grade material available for clinical trials in the fall. It's an area where we're all learning and we will, as we get through this, I'm sure become increasingly attuned to the pandemic realities and how, how pandemics work and quite a lot of learnings as we go through this. But the conference board is a organization that reaches out to a number of organizations across the country. We have a number of senior executives from companies. We reached out to them and said, what are the questions that you'd want to ask? And one of the questions that they were wanting to know from your perspective is, what should organizational leaders be looking for as it relates to the vaccine development to help them understand how they should be understanding the vaccine picture as it relates to their employees and to their customers? For organizational leaders, it's really understanding the importance of the vaccines. And until we have a vaccine available, I think it's very important that the leaders enforce the public health guidelines that are provided right now, social distancing, washing, working remotely, masks, and so on. And with the emergence or with vaccines then becoming available, I would not say that now we can forget about all of these things. The vaccine is not a magic bullet. It's going to take a little while before enough people will have it. It's going to take a little while before we reach what we call herd immunity. Enough people being vaccinated that we think we can slow down the spread of the virus. And you might have heard uh, Tony Fauci in the U.S. talking about it, that there is even concern that if not enough people are taking the vaccine, we may not get the level of herd immunity that we really need. My advice to organizational leaders would be to continue to encourage their people, their staff to follow the public health guidelines, use common sense, wash your hands, use masks, social distancing as much, and be careful in reopening. I mean, you know, as a father of three young children, we all want the country to reopen as quickly as possible, for the schools to reopen and so on, right? It's hard working from home with kids and all that. We need to use common sense how we do it and not do it too fast or too uncontrolled. And so that's really my message, I guess, to the organizational leaders. You and your teams are working hard on the development of the vaccine. Are there things that you think public or private organizations could do or should be trying to do to support the development of the vaccine or the distribution of the vaccine? It help your work and your organization's work move forward? Unfortunately, it's always about money, right? We've been telling the government and big funders for years now that we think there will be another pandemic. We think it's important that Canada has more manufacturing capacity. We emphasize the importance of centers like ours for a country to have. And unfortunately, because of other priorities, funding for that was not always consistent. What we're seeing now is in a situation like that, it is important that countries like Canada have organizations like Vito Intervac to quickly respond. And where private and industry and government can come together and help is really ensuring that we have 
enough operational funding available here to have the best scientists in the world working here in what we discussed before, predicting what the next emerging disease might be, anticipating it, being ready for it so that we don't need to catch up to it and spend a year locking down the country, but rather being able to have a vaccine available very quickly or other solutions like antivirals and so on. Unfortunately, it's all about funding being able to attract the best minds of the world to work here and ensuring that that this is Canada's pandemic center. Are there other lessons that you hope that we take away from this pandemic experience? This question that you touched on earlier, ethically, how are we distributing vaccines once they become available? I think that is really something that on a global level is something that needs to be addressed. And it's difficult to address with various countries and various governments. We are seeing that certain countries are moving in in quite the opposite and more a nationalistic direction. I think for infectious diseases, as they are global problems, global solutions are required. And we need organizations like Gavi or WHO to coordinate these global vaccine efforts and If there is one thing that we can do better for the next pandemic is to have all these things ready for the next pandemic so that when it happens and when people start making vaccines, the process is identified by which we then share these vaccines with people around the world. Does Canada have a chance to be a leader in that space? Canada has a leadership role on the research side. We're doing fantastic science here in the country. We're clearly one of the leaders, one of the top countries when it comes to the research side, the discovery side of it. Unfortunately, we lost a little bit on, as I mentioned before, in our manufacturing capacities. Although we have still some of the large companies in Canada, overall, I think we have lost a little bit to other countries who have put more emphasis on attracting these large vaccine companies and ensuring that when they are making these vaccines, that they are available to Canadians then. We're maybe more in the middle pack. We're not one of the top on the manufacturing side anymore, but we're certainly one of the stronger countries when it comes to research. Volker, what are you optimistic about as we go through this? I am optimistic and that we will have a vaccine in a very short period of time. The data from our own vaccine candidate looks very, very promising. But also when you look globally, I think there is now quite a few technologies that are coming forward, different technologies. And I think that is a very, very positive thing. Not every vaccine is the same. Some are using novel, not previously proven technologies, like the Moderna vaccine, for example, has never been in humans before. And others are using more proven technologies like ours, a subunit vaccine that is part of many, many vaccines that are given or used in humans. Seeing the mix of different vaccine technologies coming forward is a very, very positive thing. It will allow us to learn a lot for future pandemics, but it also will ensure that we will have eventually a vaccine available or several vaccines available that can be produced at large scale. Not all of these vaccines are easy to manufacture, so having different technologies coming forward is a very, very good thing. Dr. Gertz, thank you so much for taking the time. You are obviously incredibly busy, and I think everyone would like you to get back to the work and get the vaccine developed. Thank you so much for taking the time to participate in the podcast. Thank you for your interest. You've been listening to Bright Future by the Conference Board of Canada. This series is produced by Jenda Hamill. Nancy Nguyen is our audio engineer, and Andy Joy is our writer. 
Ideas were contributed by Rob Collins and Aaron Brophy. I'm Michael Bassett, and I'm the host and executive producer for this series. The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not reflect the conference board's opinion. For more podcasts, videos, commentary, and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.